In this episode of the Transforming Society podcast, we're talking to Rob Kitchen and Alistair Fraser, authors of Slow Computing, Why We Need Balanced Digital Lives. So this episode comes in two parts. In this part one, we're looking at the consequences of digital technologies, focusing on time acceleration and data extraction. In part two, we'll talk about what we can do about it based on the ideas in the book. Welcome, Rob. Welcome, Alistair. Thanks for having us. Thank Hi, you. Judge. Thank you for talking to me. So at the heart of the book is the message that it's possible to experience the joy and benefits of digital technology in a way that asserts individual and collective autonomy over our time and data. Before we talk through the concept of slow computing and how we can achieve it, it'd be good to look at where we are now. Um, how has digital technology caused time acceleration and what's the impact of this individually and collectively? Um, I, 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 I think that it's important to say that digital technology um, hasn't caused acceleration per se. I mean, it's, you know, this notion of acceleration, of time acceleration, it's got deeper causes. It's the way in which capitalist society works, the way in which the economy works. There's a, you know, a desperate need for companies to have a quick turnaround of goods, of information, um, of money, and therefore of people, you know, running around facilitating all that rapid movement. So there's been a more general rush towards acceleration, but certainly what we can say is that digital technology has become a key enabler of all this. It's given a major boost to the forms of acceleration that we see in society at the moment. Yeah, and individually, of course, the, it varies from person to person. So, you know, uh, rather, rather than having more time, we're, sometimes we seem to have uh, less time and we're kind of running around more, we're juggling more tasks, we're tied to uh, digital leashes mm. uh, in the sense of that, you know, we always have our phone or um, and we try to organise our lives through them. So, you, can, you know, these kind of serendipitous counters or quickly going backwards and forwards, whereas before we used to we used to always operate on clock time. We would, we would set a time when we were going to meet and that's when we would meet, whereas now we kind of do that more uh, on the on the fly. So we're operating what's called network time. It's kind of instantaneous and it's always on. Uh, we're kind of doing more on the fly rather than a planned routine. And stress is one major impact off of that and um, and anxiety around uh, whether you're keeping on top of everything and whether you're uh, doing what you need to do and what you know what's going to happen next and so on. There's a loss of a sense of control, I think, isn't there? I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's the it's the I mean, in part, it's the and I think this is gets to the collective experience. It's just this everyday experience now that all of us are probably familiar with the sense of what we might refer to as hyper coordination, constantly texting each other, buzzing each other um, through various different apps, trying to organize things, whether it's, you know, you, 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 the the activities for your kids or a family event. Um, it just seems as if so many of us now are running around all the time, organising and arranging everyday life, and then feeling as if we're always needing to respond promptly yeah. um, within the, the numerous and then various, what, what I think we can refer to as chains of social relations. Um, and, and that's that everyday experience um, of acceleration that, that, that in, certainly in the last 10 years, since all of us have jumped on smartphones, where uh, it's, it's very common to feel as if you're bombarded by messages and needing to respond. And that's yeah. not just uh, at home, it's also at work. 
Um, and it's not just about the, the amount of messaging going around at work, but it's also the, the, the working time drift, the fact that nowadays it's very common for lots of us to be receiving and answering calls and emails or other forms of messages um, at home, when the kids are around, out of hours, over the weekend. Um, and, and, and that's that sense of acceleration that, that, that we are interested in. Yeah, cool. Thank you. Um, and the second aspect of our digital lives you focus on in the book is data extraction and how we're now monitored through countless digital touch points. Our data is continually collected and sold in enormous business transactions and responded to with advertising. Um, and that includes ideologically driven political advertising. So to what extent does data extraction shape our day to day experience? Oh, God, in lots of different ways. Um, I mean, one of the one of the key ways that most people are familiar with is the idea of the kind of the filter bubble or the recommendation engine that we're that we're kind of pushed towards um, what we what kinds of things we buy or the kinds of ads we see or the or what or what kinds of things appear in our social media feed or what posts we see um, uh, and so on. So, you know, it, that kind of leads to us all having kind of unique experiences around uh, what we see when we shop on Amazon or what we what's what's recommended to us when we look at uh, Netflix or what posts appear in our Facebook timeline uh, and so on. So we're constantly being kind of sorted and assessed by uh, different algorithms and nudged and pushed in uh, different different ways. And data extraction makes that kind of steering possible by building profiles about us and then looking at the uh, kind of patterns within our profiles against other people's profiles and, uh, and, then, and then making kind of recommendations and decisions about uh, in relation to that. So and on all kinds of things. So what we watch, who we date, if we're on dating websites, what kind of special offers we get or whether we're overlooked for those offers, you know, whether we get the loan or the mortgage or the job. Um, and beyond what companies, it kind of shapes our rights and entitlements that we see from government. So how we're treated by different agencies, whether that might be welfare or policing or security services uh, and so on. They're, they're all shaped by the state of this kind of uh, extracted from us and then kind of profiled and then uh, acted upon. And, and a, another thing that's important here is just the um, experience which we've responded to in the book and we're you know, building on what many others have been saying of seeing a great set of technologies wasted um, while data extraction processes have created a web that works for Google or Facebook rather than for us. Right. And the privatization of the web as a whole and then the pivot towards an economic model based on data extraction, whether that's for IP development, intellectual property development, for ad sales, um, we find it like just dulls the senses. Mm. Um, it's like a digital tax. It's a tax on us as people in a society that could be using these technologies to cooperate and solve problems, but instead we spend our time skipping through various ad ecologies online um, while we confront each other and ramp up the vitriol and spite. Um, this is the, uh, the the sort of data extraction uh, economy that that, that 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 we find so problematic. Yeah, um, you kind of both touched on it there, but I wanted to ask you as well about the potentially more sinister sides to data extraction. Things like social sorting and racial profiling um, always feels a bit like George Orwell's 1984, where we got to a point where 
data determinism predicts what we might do in the future. I think they label people pre-criminals and things like that. Can you talk about how data extraction can deepen inequality and injustice? Yeah, so uh, as we've already just kind of said there, you know, the data is being used to kind of profile people and predictively profile. So it's not just it's trying to judge what we might do and then react to that or nudge us to act in a certain way uh, and so on. And often what it's doing is trying to uh, reward or look after high value uh, customers uh, or uh, clients or, um, uh, or or discriminate against other ones. And uh, and, that's, and that's bound up in a whole series of different technologies, whether that's predictive policing, where it tries to identify um, who, who might likely to be committing crimes and to direct attention to, uh, to them in advance or to particular places. So and neighbourhoods that it thinks it needs to uh, ramp up patrols uh, and so on. Um, it could be in relation to things like welfare, so algorithms being used in welfare to decide um, who is a deserving person and who isn't, and so who should get mm. what benefit, who should be penalised. Um, it could be through things like uh, social credit scoring, um, which is being rolled out in China, for example, where each individual person is given a score based on their behavior and then what they how by society varies is that so whether you can go on a high-speed train or whether you can fly or whether you can get access to a certain building or whether you can get uh, loans from particular banks or what kinds of services you can access so you have to have a certain number of points to be able to do particular things yeah Yeah, you have a certain number to be able to do uh, uh, and whether you'll get a quick loan or whether you have to go through loads of hoops, whether you, yes. you know, what, what kind of public transport you can do, leave an effect where which schools your kids can go to, which universities you can go to. Wow. Um, there's a whole series of different things based on whether you're being a good citizen. So determined kind of, by what you're doing online? Uh, determined by what you're doing online, determined by how you're captured by facial recognition cameras as you move around or automatic number plate recognition cameras and okay. monitor your drive or how you um, interact with different private companies. So a lot of private companies are supplying data into the system as well. Uh, so whether you're uh, being responsible with your money um, and you're paying back your loans. And so there's a whole series of different things. Uh, it also comes out in dynamic pricing as well. So what the kinds of things we get to pay, the price we pay online or in the supermarket and so on is or for our insurance or for our flights. Uh, you know, we're kind of used to dynamic pricing, everybody paying different amounts and the data is shaping that. And again, who's seen as a high value customer and a deserving of discounts and who is seen as uh, more of a risk uh, or not or uh, not a long term valuable customer might get a higher price and so on. And that, and that kind of perpetuates inequalities along lines of class and race and gender and disability uh, and so on. So, you, you know, and that, and that has led to a whole series of academics and civil society groups kind of arguing for the idea of data justice. Yeah. Of, of trying to push back and kind of argue there has to be a lot more transparency and accountability and uh, regulation around how some of these processes uh, work and a pushback more towards rights and entitlements as opposed to uh, seeing people as, as customers and, de- and deserving on the on the base of some kind of monetary value. Yeah. And, 
and I, I would just add that you know when we when we think about data extraction and its relationship with inequality and injustice, I think we have to remember that the last two decades have seen digital technologies and the developers of those digital technologies boost the wealth and income gaps. Um, you, you know, we have to recognise the big tech stocks have surged in value, and especially in the last decade, and that that benefits a tiny minority of the planet's population. Um, and then it increases the likelihood of further rounds of investment in troubling technologies. Um, and data extraction has been at the core of this activity. Yeah. We talk about this in the book as a data grab, which is, if you like, a digital play on the notion of a land grab. And there should be no doubt that it benefits a small minority, a small but powerful class of businesses and their executives in particular, while also enabling the introduction of technologies in workplaces or in homes that make it harder for workers and citizens to stand in the way. So thinking about what's going on now and COVID-19, is track and trace an example of data extraction being used for social good? Um to a certain degree, although the introduction of the of the track and trace apps was a very rocky process, and you know initially it was kind of brought in very quickly, and there was a kind of a notion of which um, uh, tackling the tackling the disease had to take priority over civil liberties, and so there were a number of uh, different again activists and civil society groups and academics kind of pushed back and kind of said, look, you know this isn't a choice between you know, it's not uh, uh, civil liberties or um, uh, or tackling the virus. You can you can have both, and we need to find a way of introducing uh, controls into into that process. So, um, while while the technology is being used uh, for for public good, uh, there has to be quite a bit of work to make sure that it didn't create more problems. And so, there's a number of uh, different kinds of questions there around, um, you know, privacy is one issue of that, but there's also issues around uh, governance and how it's used to um, change people's behaviour. So this technology is about changing people's behaviour in a very yeah. explicit way, about quarantining, it's about restricting movement, not, not necessarily contact tracing apps, but certainly things like uh, quarantining apps, uh, quarantine enforcement, travel permission, uh, social distance, movement monitoring, symptom tracking apps. Like there were a whole series of different technologies being used from smartphone apps to facial recognition and thermal cameras to travel permission, uh, to, to, sorry, to smart helmets, to wearable devices, to drones, to predictive analytics. So there's a whole series of these different technologies, all of which were about monitoring people's uh, movement and their behavior and trying to limit them in some way. So privacy was the big issue that came up, but actually in a lot of ways, what was more important was this was about controlling people's behavior. Right. It was about movement. It was about um, kind of spatial sorting, about deciding who can go where, how they can go, when they can go, on what conditions they could go. And it was about population profiling. And then there's bigger questions, and there's how much does that get normalized? How much does this extra surveillance become the new normal? Yeah. Because you know, after 9-11, there was a whole series of new security surveillance apparatus rolled out, and that's not been rolled back. In no. fact, somewhere happened. And the question is, is, are these new kind of COVID technologies going to become part of the new normal and will just uh, be there for long term? And to what extent will that change 
um, how, how we kind of live our lives and the extent to which we accept this kind of data extraction. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, so things like, and it could also be things like workplace surveillance. So there's a lot of companies now uh, introduce new new tech that monitors keystrokes, that monitors uh, uh, how, much, how much email people are doing or uh, their productivity. Uh, there's some companies that insist you work with your video camera on the whole time so they can actually see you at, your, at the desk and so on. Um, so, so the question then is, like, you know, it, it has COVID become a gateway to uh, these kind of more invasive uh, kind of surveillance technologies, whether that's on the street, whether it's at work, whether it's in, uh, you know, hospitality or whatever it might be? And can that easily be rolled back? And mm. so that with the tracing, the, the track and trace app, because that, that says that, you know, they can only keep the data for 14 days. Often it's only kept on the phone. It's not kept in a central database and it's deleted and so on. But that had to be pushed for. It yeah. wasn't wasn't the starting point. Privacy by design wasn't the starting point. It had to be um, kind of forced into place. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Alistair. In part two, we'll look at ways in which we can create more balanced digital lives based on Robin Allister's book, Slow Computing. More information is available at bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.